going to return to our study of the uh, statement of faith sections. And um, I know we addressed the last one already uh, regarding perseverance of the saints, but we can discuss whether it fits better here or, or under the topic of salvation. Um, also related to this is uh, what would we do once we finish up looking at the statement of faith. And what I would like us to do is there's a very helpful book on the subject of conscience based on uh, Romans 14 and 15 and the related passages in 1 Corinthians that I think would be helpful for us to look through in terms of what is conscience, how do we train it, can it be calibrated incorrectly, how do we fix that, how do we have patience with one another related to all those sorts of things. And so that's what I'm planning for us to look at next in the Sunday School Hour. So what we'll do is we'll do this either this week and next week or just this week. Then we'll start into that book. And then in connection with uh, that book, I will also be working to sort of compile some of the things that we've discussed up to this point and take a month or so to look over all those things. And then we can start working back through the sections and have another go at them. And try to work toward having um, something ready for us as a whole church to discuss and or vote on, uh, I would say, by the, by the middle of the year business meeting, but possibly before that. So that's kind of the timeline of what I'm looking at uh, with regards to the statement of faith. So uh, just to review, since it's been a little while since we've looked at all this, um, we have... Um, level one of these things would be the question of, of uh, am I a Christian? So let's try this. There we go. What are core essential things from the Bible for us to know? Level two would be the things of which um, uh, trying to think of a good word here. I'm going to use the word evangelical because my hope is that would distinguish it from, say, Roman Catholic or some cultish group. And then level three would be things like uh, specific passage interpretations, uh, things along those lines. And then even beyond these things, which are more about like what the Bible actually says, you know, down here you have things like policy, sermon times, some of those sorts of things. And to clarify where we're going, this is what I would say someone has to agree to to join our church. This is what we would also clarify in a related document to say, and if you join our church, this is what we're going to teach on these subjects. This is where there's going to be difference legitimately, even among people in this room. And I, don't, I think that there is room for some of those differences. Um, Genesis 6, do you believe that those are angels or human beings? Uh, why are there giants? Some of those sorts of things. I think there's legitimate room for differences of interpretation. 
I have a particular idea that I'm going to say, here's what I believe this is saying. Here's another school of thought on it. I don't think that that's a statement of faith issue. No one should get kicked out of the church because they say Genesis 6 has to do with angels, or they say it doesn't. Somebody says, Jesus is not God. First John says that's a you're out of the church issue if you, if you don't repent of it. And, um, uh, you know, something like, um, trying to think of some of our previous examples, our church says you have to be baptized by immersion after belief. Presbyterian Church would not have that requirement. That is certainly important, but it's more on this level than this level. So with that framework in mind, let's read through the first paragraph, and then we'll talk through some of these issues. And remember, our questions that we sort of have in the back of our mind as we look at these topics are, is there anything that's unclear? Is there anything that is, uh, could be supported better from Scripture? Uh, is not supported from Scripture. Uh, we want to use a different Scripture passage to support it. And then, is there anything that is, that is missing that we need to add in? And we can look on the back side of the page a little bit later. So I'm looking at the side that says, The Resurrection and Return of Christ. So we'll start with that paragraph. We believe in and accept the sacred Scriptures at their face value on these subjects. So first of all, that specific statement should be a given based on what we've said earlier in the statement of faith, I would think, right? Okay. So that was, uh, that was the initial uh, thought that I had on that one. Um, excuse me a moment. I'm going to grab a pen from the hallway. Difficult to take notes with the marker here. So along that first line, I would simply say, see earlier, because we're establishing that with what we say about the scriptures and the authority of God's word and so forth. On the resurrection, we believe that Christ rose bodily from the grave the third day, according to the scriptures, that he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, that he alone is our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. We believe that this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. We believe in the blessed hope, the personal, visible, premillennial, pre-tribulation, and imminent coming of our Lord and Savior. And then there's a variety of passages uh, supporting that. Um, so let's start by looking at the passages real quick, because that will be helpful in establishing how those passages relate to these statements. Let me read for you Matthew 28, 6, and 7. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Um, John twenty twenty seven is along similar lines. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. So that would be connected with the idea of bodily. Matthew 28, 6 and 7 would be the idea that he rose 
uh, 1 Corinthians 15.4 is essentially Paul's summary of the gospel in its most basic form. We'll start in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So that is further support on the subject of the resurrection. Then if we turn back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, I'll read that for you. It's what the angels say to the disciples. I'll start in verse 9. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And certainly we're familiar with First uh, Thessalonians 4 from our study of that last year. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then finally, James 5 and verse 8, You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So, looking over that whole paragraph, any thoughts along the lines of anything that's clear or unclear, anything that fits well or should be reworded to fit well with those passages, any additional passages that we should add in? Bob? I think those verses are excellent. My one question is, is this, if we're talking level one, Mm such as we believe is the last I would say the last sentence in the last paragraph we believe in the blessed hope of first individual premillennial pre-tribulation and imminent I mean I think that's yes we believe it but yeah I would say that's level two now should there be some type of statement maybe but I, I wonder if going into the premillennial pre-tribulation is necessary on level one and if this is the right This is the sticky issue with the topic of end times and probably the thing that when it first, I first thought about it, five or six years ago there was a big discussion about should your statement of faith say something about the end times and if it does, what should it say and and all of those sorts of things because traditionally in independent fundamental heritage Baptist churches there has been a tendency to exalt the premillennial pre-tribulational idea to the level of you're not a Christian if you don't believe this. Um, 
there's a guy that I know who was uh, interested in going to the missions field, and because he became convinced that Christ was coming back after the tribulation instead of before, that basically closed the door for him to go and be supported by the churches that he was connected with. Now, certainly, there are a variety of other churches that he could have gone to, but it's difficult if you've been in one circle and made connections here to then sort of jump over here and make connections with other churches and, and those sorts of things. And to make, to make it clear what I'm saying, this is a group of Bible-believing churches, this is a group of Bible-believing churches, but they have a different view on end times events, and it's difficult to bridge that gap. So my suggestion would be, well, before I give my suggestion, any further discussion on particularly that last sentence in light of what we've looked at in these verses? So here's what I'm thinking. I think that with regards to that last sentence, if we move the words premillennial, pre-tribulational to the expanded discussion document, I think that that would be helpful. One question in my mind is, way to categorize it, I think I'd put it this way. Here's how I would set this up, and I apologize, my writing is not particularly good. I've typed for far too long. So. But Jesus is coming again. One of my favorite passages on this subject, 1 Thessalonians 1, um, which might not be a bad one for us to add in here. Let me just read it for you. Well, you've probably heard me quote it enough times that you wouldn't need me to read it for you, but. If I had to summarize, what does faith look like? In every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and await for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, if I had to say, what is the biblical support for what a Christian must believe about the return of Christ? I think that that is a great passage to look at. Now, if someone wants to quibble, they could say, well, the Jews didn't turn from idols. They turned from a perhaps a skewed understanding of God to a true understanding of God. So this only applies to Gentiles and not to Jews. 
Potentially you can make that argument, but as a model, as a pattern, I think that's a good passage. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, potentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think it's difficult for us to quantify exactly what's going through the minds of the first century Jews, but um, so if we, if we had to say, is there biblical support for tying a concept of the return of Christ to an essential part of what it means to be a Christian. I think from a passage like this, or even the one from the angels in uh, Matthew 28, or from uh, the beginning of Acts 1, I think there's precedent for saying, if you're a Christian, part of being a Christian is an expectation of Jesus' return, because part of that deals with your understanding of who Jesus is. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, so uh, John 14 would be another passage. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the passage goes on, but essentially, we tend to pull out verse 6, and sometimes we de-emphasize verses 1 through 4, and verses 1 through 4 are, Jesus is going to make a place for those who are his disciples, and he's going to bring them to be there with him. So I don't think that we can like draw a hard and fast line between those two things, and so... I don't want to overemphasize it, but I think an expectation that Jesus will return is a pretty important part of what it means to follow Christ, be one of his disciples, and be properly related to him. Yes? Okay. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I think we would all be on the same page with saying this is pretty important and probably is at this level, right? Okay. What about the pre-millennial idea? Um, flip your page over, and, and I think there's some passages here that'll help us think through that part of it. So let me read the first two paragraphs here. Uh, this is something that I wrote initially probably about 10 years ago, so uh, probably more like eight years ago. So I'm sure that there is revision that could be done to it, but I think it's a baseline for us to start from. The last days may refer to the time period prior to the second coming of Christ in which evil men grow worse and those who follow God face increasing suffering. That's the way that Paul uses the idea of last days in uh, 2 Timothy 3.1. The last days, difficult times will come and will be lovers of self and so on. However, the concept of last days has prophetic significance referring to the return of Christ as King and Lord. There's some passages regarding that from the Old Testament, including the work of Christ in resurrection. This is where they're the very um, closely 
developed argument that Christ makes is, the Father gives me some, I've got them, I'll raise them up, I won't lose them, they'll be with me forever. There's that, that whole development in John 6 in the context of his, uh, his argument with the Pharisees. Uh, I think that's a very important idea. The second category, the use of last days regarding the second coming of Christ, is in view here. So the two categories would be the time period between when Christ leaves and when he comes back is referred to as last days. And then there's last days as like the end of the world. Sometimes you'll hear people use the word apocalypse. They'll use the word uh, something related to the ideas of revelation. Uh, that, that's, that's the idea that we're talking about. And this gets into the thing that we were just talking about with the millennium. The central event of the last days is the second coming of Christ, which has two parts. Now, the first part is the point that's disputed at the third level. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but I'll just read through it. In the first, Christ returns for his saints by means of the rapture, a coming which is unexpected, only for believers, and which saves the church from the wrath of God. In the second, Christ returns as judge and king to pour out wrath on unbelievers, receive the honor due him, and to rule his kingdom as the heir of David for the thousand years of the millennium. During the second, Christ will come physically to earth and fulfill the remaining prophecies regarding the reign of the Messiah. So, turn over to Revelation 20, because I think this is probably a very helpful passage along these lines. Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. The basic question is this. We have three views that are categorized as pre, post, and ah, millennial. So, premillennial is what is in the statement of faith. The reason for people holding to a premillennial view, as in Christ comes before the millennium and establishes his reign, is 
this passage. I mean, I think this is the strongest support for that idea. Are there other passages that contribute additional details? Yes. But if I had to say, why are you a premillennialist? This is the passage. Let me highlight a few of the reasons for that. Notice the repetition of the phrase, for a thousand years. A bunch of times in this passage. And we say, well, but he could be speaking figuratively. Well, why then does he say, for a thousand years, and then in the end of verse 3, he says, for a short time? If he's just meaning sort of a round figure, why doesn't he speak of it in terms like, for a short time? for a long time, for a short time, versus a very specific description for a thousand years and then for a short time. Furthermore, uh, they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So there's a sense of here's a time period, and until that time period is fulfilled and finished, uh, the dead will not, uh, these others will not come back to life and again, it's repeated, 4,000 years. Verse 7, when the 1,000 years are completed. So John seems to be stressing what? 1,000 years. Now, there are people who will say that this is a figurative number, it's a symbolic number, it's a... I'm not sure that we can say that based on this specific passage. Now, understand that there is a lot larger context of Revelation to consider, but... Um, we don't have time to go into all of that this morning, but the bottom line would be simply because a number occurs in the context of figurative or symbolic language doesn't mean the number is unreal. So, for example, in Daniel 9, where it talks about 70 weeks, Daniel seems to be indicating a specific period of time that should be able to be understood by people who look at it and think about it. Now, there's dispute about what he means specifically, but here I don't think there's any question of is a week a, what period of time is, is a week or whatever, like with Daniel 9, it just says for a thousand years. And if there is no contextual indication that we should take a word to mean something other than the normal usage, there's no reason to start coming up with creative explanations for it. That being said, there is a level of clarity that is different between this and this because of the symbolic context, the differences of interpretations on the book of Revelation, and all of those sorts of things. There is, there is as far as I can think, no passage that says, you must believe Jesus will reign for a thousand years, closely associated with, and they believe the gospel. Unlike this, this is clearly associated with they believe the gospel, they're waiting for Jesus to return. Any questions on that part of it at this point? This, I, I assume most of you have probably heard this before. Is this... Yeah, okay. This is something that's usually... usually taught... I feel like sometimes we don't necessarily talk about it in the context of sermons, so we sort of pick it up in other places sometimes. So, Bruce. Yes. Yes.
I think we need to look at God's word and make sure that we're understanding it properly in the in the context in which it's given. And I think that's an excellent point. I'm not saying it changes based on our perspective on it. I'm just saying in terms of how closely tied these concepts are to what it means to be a Christian, I think there's levels of closeness to you have to understand and know this as part of being a Christian versus you understand and know this as you grow in your Christian life. You know, that sort of thing. And so that's where I think if somebody says, I want to join the church, and they say, I have no idea about Revelation. And we say, Jesus said he's coming back. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? They say, yes. I don't see a reason for us to exclude them from the church. I don't think you have to have had an exhaustive course on the book of Revelation in order to become a part of the church. Look at Acts 2. They believed, they were baptized, they were added to the assembly. But I also think that, to Bruce's point, if God said it, it's important. So this is certainly part of discipleship to understand these things. All right. Is everybody good on that point? We'll move on to this one. Okay. I think the premillennialism is here. Because that is a discussion that's not really a discussion at this level. It's a discussion between a Presbyterian church versus most Presbyterian churches, some Baptist churches versus our church. Let me just explain these other two real quick before we get into this, just for sake of clarity. Postmillennialism was an idea that was popular before World War II. Why do I say that? Because there were two branches of, before World War I and World War II, there were two branches of it. The, the uh, biblical, the more biblically based version of it basically said, as we preach the gospel, we will sort of bring in God's kingdom on earth. Which was a very optimistic view and then World War I happened, World War II happened, and people realized things are not getting better, they're getting worse, and post-millennialism largely fell out of favor, although there's still some who hold to it. The unbiblical form of it is something that you might have heard of referred to as the social gospel. And I don't know that it typically is presented this way, but essentially it says the same thing, except what is the gospel that's being preached to improve the world? It's let's fix society. It becomes less about sin and those sorts of things and more about uh, Charles Sheldon in his steps. If we just live a Christian life, we'll sort of transform society. Whether or not they get saved, there'll just sort of be this upswell of, of Christian-like living among people. And I don't think that that is biblically good enough. There needs to be actual conversion, not just fixing the, the evils of society. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Amillennialism is an idea that's popularized. Um, it, it's, it's been in various forms for a long time in church history. Uh, a surprising place that you might find it would be at the end of the novel Ben-Hur, in which, I think his name was Lou Wallace, basically said, and Ben-Hur realized that he didn't need to look for the kingdom of God on earth because the kingdom of God was already in his heart. That's amillennialism in a nutshell. God is reigning now. I don't need to look for a future physical kingdom because God's already my king in my heart in a spiritual sort of a way. And so that's all there is to it. Why is this important at this level versus here? Because 
your perspective on these things impacts how you approach the mission and purpose of the church. As an illustration, if you're a post-millennialist, you're going to say part of my job is to transform society by the preaching of the gospel, but connected with that, you're probably going to be doing a lot of the same things that someone who believes the social gospel will, which is, let's try to fix poverty, get clean water, all those sorts of things, which impacts our view of missions, our view of what we do in the local church, all of those sorts of things. Are those bad things to do? No. But when Jesus makes a statement like, the poor you will always have with you, and another statement, what will it gain a man if he has the whole world and loses his own soul, poverty is not the most significant problem we face as individuals. Should we have compassion? Yes. Should we do what we can to help people in need around us? Yeah, sure. But someone can have all the money in the world or none of the money in the world, and that does not affect or impact their eternal destiny, which is the most important thing. And that tends to get blurred, particularly with a post-millennial approach to the church. An amillennial approach to the church, which has been more popular in recent years, surprisingly ends up in a similar place. I think that strands of post-millennialism and amillennialism contributed to a lot of the perhaps overemphasis on politics in the last 50 years, which is, if we can just get the right people in office, everything will be great for us in the church. And we've seen that that doesn't work, either because there's not enough people to actually make it happen, or because when those people get in, they largely behave similarly to a lot of the other people who are already elected. And the bottom line is, the mission and the role of the church is not to fix society by electing the right person, by just sort of making Christian versions of everything. Again, is it good to have Christian schools? Sure. Is it good to have Christians running different <coughs> institutions in society? Sure. Do we please God more if we make a Christian version of every institution that we find out in the world, whether it be a retirement home or a school or a whatever else? No, that's not the only path or even our primary focus. Instead, our goal is to help people understand this question. Am I a Christian? And if we do that in the context of a Christian school, great. If we do that in the context of homeschooling, great. If we do that in the context of a public school, I mean, it's going to be a harder path potentially, but great if you can do that well. Um, but pre, post, and amillennial impacts the mission of the church, which is why I think it's here and not here. Does that make sense? Is that everybody kind of on the same page with that? I know I sort of threw a bunch of stuff at you just now, but... Um, so if we go on to the third thing here, which is the question of the timing of the tribulation, not so much the timing of the tribulation, but more like when does Jesus rescue the church relative to it? Uh, let me reread to the first part of the, par the paragraph here. In the first part of Christ's return, he returns for his saints by means of the rapture, a coming which is unexpected only for believers and which saves the church from the wrath of God. 
and then jumping to the next paragraph, between the first and second parts of the coming of Christ, a period known as the Tribulation lasts for seven years, during which the whole earth will endure the reign of the Antichrist and other servants of Satan, enduring intense suffering as the wrath of God is poured out in judgment on sin, Daniel 9:27, worsening after the midpoint of the Tribulation. Israel will suffer greatly, yet 144,000 will be saved. In addition, Christ will judge his church in order to reward faithful service. Following the tribulation, Satan will once again lead an army in opposition to Christ, but they will be utterly defeated and consigned to everlasting judgment. At this time, all those who lived in wickedness and rejected God throughout history, whose names as a result were not found written in the book of life, will also be judged. So, if we look at the connection between all of these things, the question here is... Is it, oops, let me grab my other marker. <laughs> I'll put it up here so you can see it better. So we have a seven-year period. This is the tribulation. We have Christ returns here. And then we have the millennium. So here's the question. Does Christ come back for the church here? Or does he come back for the church here? That's the question in view in this part. The middle point? Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll throw that one in. Ooh. There's an article that I'll send you so you can look at it, not because I'm trying to persuade you to it, but I think it's a fairly well-reasoned defense of it, even though I disagree with it. So, um, so the question of the tribulation is the point at which I think there's more... I think all Christians who are genuinely Christians would agree to this. Jesus is coming back. I think people who have... I have to say this carefully... People who are willing to look at Revelation 20 and interpret it consistently with how the rest of Scripture is interpreted in terms of, uh, I think people who end up at all millennialism, which is not up there anymore, people who end up at all millennialism often will do careless things with some of the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament. And that's a bigger part of this, too. It's not just Revelation 20, but in terms of the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel, if they don't actually have a fulfillment, it's for one of two reasons. Either the promise was conditional on Israel's obedience, or God didn't keep his word if, uh, if they're not fulfilled. Clearly, the second one, God didn't keep his word, is not an option on the table for us. And the idea of it being conditional in Israel's obedience seems to be difficult, given that God makes the promise to David in 1 Samuel 7 and seems to be very set on it going forward, despite David's personal behavior. So if it was conditional, it would seem that it was, um, 
it would seem that he would have structured it differently in 1 Samuel 7. Now, it was conditional in the sense of God said, I'm going to punish them if they disobey, but it wasn't like I'm going to completely cast them off. And we see that fulfilled in Christ as the Davidic descendant and all that sort of thing. Another complicated discussion, but simply to say this, if we're careless with the promises of the Old Testament, we're going to potentially have a hard time with Revelation 20, and we're going to want to make all of it figurative. Israel had land, we have heaven. Israel had sacrifices, we have Christ as almost a virtual sacrifice, but not entirely. Uh, Israel had uh, material blessings, we have spiritual blessings. And while there are some senses in which that is true, in the, in the fact that what God promised to Israel is not what we have, the reason for that difference is not because God said, forget you Israel, now everybody else. It's simply that we've been grafted in and God has now added these things in addition to the promises that he made to Israel about land and seed and blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12, which are fulfilled and will be fulfilled. God has also promised to the church, which includes Gentiles, all of these spiritual blessings that are described in Ephesians 1 and, and all of these other sorts of things. So it's not that this replaces this, but that all of these things come together and we see God's goodness poured out on Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews. Yes? Is it possible to say, generally speaking, that a lot of those views come from a non-dispensational interpretation of Scripture? Yes. Yeah. Which goes to another point, which is, and that's a whole other thing, um, sometime I think maybe we'll look at, there's a guy named Michael Vlock who teaches out at Master's Seminary, John MacArthur's uh, school out in California, and Ryrie and other people wrote pretty complicated books on the subject of dispensationalism. Vlock basically says, here's six or seven reasons, and it's like a 60-page book. It's much more accessible, so maybe I'll put a copy in the case there, and we can talk about it later, but um, yeah, that's tied in, uh, but I think that if we had to say, where does it fit with our statement of faith, I think it would go back with the, how do we understand the Bible, and um, so we can, well, let's, curious right, 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 yeah. Right. So non-dispensationalists are often, and the term is supersessionists, which means that the church has superseded Israel in the same way that a new model of the iPhone supersedes the old one. And I think that that is an unfortunate assumption about the way that God views Israel and the way that God views the church. So, uh, and I don't agree with it, but uh, we'll, we'll revisit that when we come around to interpretation of Scripture. So, this is very clear. I think if you're committed to saying God makes his promises, keeps them, and they're not, um, they're not easily set aside, I think this one is pretty easy to say yes. This is the one where it's a little bit more complicated because that Jesus will come back for his church, I think 1 Thessalonians 4 makes very clear. That it happens here versus here or here 
is a little bit more of a development, and let me give you the reasons why I would say that it is. Here's the number one reason why I would say that Christ comes back for his church before the tribulation. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And some of the things that we looked at this past year, um, in the past year, uh, when we were going through First and Second Thessalonians, there's this idea of the wrath of God. God's wrath is poured out against sinners. God's wrath is poured out against sinners visibly, openly, and finally in the end times events. If we are not under God's wrath as sinners, then it's difficult for me to see the church as being the subject of God's in-days eschatological wrath against sin and going through the tribulation in that sense. Now, that raises other questions like, does that mean no suffering? No, it doesn't mean no suffering. We will suffer. That's clear in Scripture. But there's a difference between the suffering that we see in our day-to-day Christian lives and the suffering that is a part of the tribulation. So, uh, I think we'll probably come back to this again next week and talk through some of these things some more, but hopefully that gives us a foundation to think through those things. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths, and we pray that you will bless our study of your word in the next service. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.